today I'm, I want to do part two of what I started last week, uh, which I, I didn't get into really the ending of, of my sermon. Um, we're talking about, uh, you know, who we are as a church and really what it looks like, what are the marks of what it means to be a Christian. And many Christians think that they know, but oftentimes they're wrong um, on many levels because they've never, they're, they, 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 they are Christian in name only, and not because they're necessarily intending uh, to be off in their theology or what have you, but uh, over the last, you know, several decades, and, and this is just a, a perennial problem, as I said, but especially over the last several decades, uh, what we've seen is we've seen uh, the gospel being distorted as just a message that if you believe that, then you're, then you're in, and then uh, you just go on and, and you try to be more moral, and things will get better for you. And so the reality of what's actually happened is that we haven't actually believed the gospel in its fullness, and then don't go on believing it. I got at that by, first of all, talking about uh, this vision statement that we have at Outward Church, or Outward Church exists uh, in order to make disciples that love Jesus and live outward. And so we want to explain what it means to love Jesus. What does that actually mean to us? And then as a result of loving Jesus and the, uh, the hope and the change that comes out of that, um, uh, how, how do we live outward? And so uh, for the next, uh, two, uh, I guess this it'll be three weeks still since I had, uh, I've got part two here right now. Um, we're going to be talking about what it means to love Jesus. And then after that, we'll do another three weeks on what it means to live outward, God, God willing. Um, this idea of uh, people who love Jesus are marked by his story. We're marked by the gospel, the story of God, in such a way that it, that it changes us. And it goes on changing us on a regular basis. And last week, I, I started off by telling you uh, a little bit about my personal uh, story there's obviously some emotion in there if you were here uh, last week. Uh, but uh, my story, and I, and I in, in some respects, hate to talk about myself, um, but my story is kind of riddled with shame. It's riddled with shame, uh, and, and, and essentially my life has been governed by shame at times. Through the way that I was brought up, through the way that I came up in the church, and the way that I, I, I felt like, uh, in some ways, God hadn't accepted me because I could not get my life together, even though I grew up in a Christian home with a daddy that was a pastor, even though I went to church for uh, my entire life, and there really was no experience in my life that did not have the church in it, I believed wrongly. I had distorted the gospel. And the reason was is because I was carrying around this shame. I did not know how to apply the gospel. Our, our culture right now talks a lot about shame and actually uses shame as a weapon. Uh, you've heard of fat shaming, perhaps. Uh, that's, there's a story recently in the news about, about fat shaming, and, and that, that comes up quite frequently. There's a, there's a, a cultural phenomenon known as uh, cancel culture, which is essentially this. Like if you did something that was shameful early on in life, then therefore we will work to cancel you. We will cancel your show. We, you will get fired uh, from, from whatever it is that you're doing. If you've done something at any point in your life that is shameful, then uh, we will cancel you. It's a, it's a cancel culture, a shame culture. And really our culture is, is a culture that's made up of uh, shame fame. 
Either you're, either you're in shame or either you're in fame. I read a story recently about um, kids in junior high and so forth that their, their greatest goal was not some type of a career, but many of them had said that they wanted to become some type of an influencer or a YouTube star or something like that because it looks like this, this thing that's so easy and they get so much fame out of it, but there really is nothing that these people do other than just kind of have a, a show on YouTube etc. But this is a very big thing. It's a very big deal today. When we talk about this idea of shame and how people are, are shamed through the Me Too movement, and I'm not saying that people shouldn't have shame about the things that they have done to incur the wrath of culture. Uh, clearly, they've done things that are wrong, but our, our culture is very quick to shame people, but then we're also quick to fame someone. We, we hold these people up high, and they're the greatest thing. And so what happens with us is that we carry around this shame. And my assertion to you this morning is this, is that shame is the result of sin being in the world. When Adam and Eve first sinned, what happened was that shame came to them. And they hid from God and God had to come find them. And he covered their shame by sacrificing two animals and clothing them uh, and clothing them because of their shame. Now, what happens is this, is that we on a continual basis are continually dealing with shame. It is, it is the result of sin. And so what's taking place in our story is a, a story of shame, and it's continually, and it just kind of builds on itself. And there's this cycle of shame <clears throat> that continues in our life. So what we learn at a very early age is this. <clears throat> we essentially learn this. Um, I am not loved unless I perform. Or I am not loved because I don't perform or I can't perform. But what we find out early in life is that ultimately what we're looking for is we're looking for this, this love and acceptance from our parents. And when that goes awry, which it really almost always does because we live in an imper imperfect world and we're all imperfect people. But as you're growing up, what you begin to take in is you begin to take in these messages that say, I am not loved if I do not perform. Now what that does as a result is then we, we begin to say to ourselves, we add another lie to this lie and say, I'm not loved unless I perform, uh, so therefore I must do blank. So put this in a real context, like uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not loved unless I am successful. I'm not loved unless I make good grades. I'm not loved unless I live in this kind of house. People will love me if I have this kind of house or I live in this part of the city. I'm not loved if I don't have kids. I'm not loved if I don't have a spouse. I mean, you, you could just go down the line. So just take one of those, for instance, like I'm not loved if I'm not successful at my work. So if, if where you find real value if where you find real love, where you find real existence because of something that happened back in your home, like if, if, if somehow you got the message right or wrong, that somehow you are not going to be loved in this house unless you have achieved, achieved, achieved. And so therefore, I must achieve and I must do, uh, do whatever, whatever it takes. 
then you come into your life, you come into your marriage, you come, you come into your community, and you, you say that the greatest value is that I must work myself to the bone. I must overwork. I must, I, I must sacrifice all things for my job. I must sacrifice my family. I sacrifice, sacrifice my kids. And so therefore, my success is the ultimate value because that is when I sense love. And so therefore, what happens is this. We believe the first lie, which says this. I'm loved as long as I perform. Or I'm not loved because I can't perform. And so then we add to that another lie. And just like with every lie, the lie that you have to tell to cover up the first lie gets bigger, and it gets bigger, and it gets bigger, and it gets bigger. And this creates a cycle of shame in our life. And that cycle of shame is how sin exists in our life on a regular basis. It's like nobody sins out of a, out of a sense of, of anything other than shame or to avoid shame, which is essentially pride. Nobody sins other than that. And so basically what we have is we have a cycle of shame that continually keeps us in on this treadmill and we continue to run and run and run. So where we left off last week was what is the gospel. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10 again here because that was our passage last week. And it says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. What we said was that ultimately our pattern of shame has created this as our story. Our story is a story of shame, and this is the end result of our story of shame. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. There's a deadness that comes over us. That deadness is felt by us in our shame on a daily basis. Following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses and sins made us alive together with Christ. Do you see, remember what I just said? We say, I'm loved if I perform. This says we did not perform, and then it says in verse 4, but God being rich in mercy and because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, this is our, our passage that we're using this morning to kind of reveal this a little bit. But what I want to get into you, with you right now is what is this story? We say people who love Jesus are marked by his story. And what is his story? His story is essentially the gospel. It is the gospel. But let me first tell you what the gospel is not. What the gospel is not. The gospel is not 
moral conformity. Not by works so that no one can boast. You can't get into God because you performed. Our world is about performance. Shame, fame culture. If you did not perform, you deserve shame. If you did perform, you deserve fame. Our world is completely based on shame, fame, on performance, and Jesus comes and he says, this is God's word, and God is saying to us, you cannot perform in order to get God to love you. You cannot perform enough. Now, many of us kind of know this, uh, you know, uh, intellectually, but in practice, we don't. So look at this, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. It talks about how Jesus is telling a story, a parable, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is the main problem uh, that our world sees with evangelical Christians today. That we ourselves believe that we are upstanding and we look down our noses at everyone else that struggles with all kinds of things. And so Jesus wants to correct this. So Jesus is going to correct this, and so he says he's speaking to people who trust in themselves, trust in their performance. He says this in verse 10 of Luke uh, chapter 18. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Stop right there for a second. The prayer is ultimately about pride in his lack of shame. He's ultimately saying, I don't have shame, I have fame. I performed. It is about performance for this Pharisee. Men and women, understand this. That evangelical Christianity today, in many parts, in many churches, is the modern-day Phariseeism. It is that. When, if, let's say you don't go here forever. What you need to understand is that you could very clearly walk into many churches today that have an, an aura of Phariseeism about them. There's no reality about who they are. They're sitting there saying, I'm glad I'm not like those people. I'm glad that that's who I am. Jesus goes on to say this. But the tax collector, now who's a tax collector? Tax collector is someone who is shamed in this culture. A tax collector is someone who lives licentiously. Women, booze, whatever. It, whatever it is, he has it because he has a lot of money. He takes money from other people. He skims off the top, etc. And so what it says is this, but the tax collector standing far off. He won't even come close to uh, this confession area. Won't even come close to God. He just, he just, he can sense the holiness and the presence of God. Jesus is talking about this guy and how uh, worried sick he is and, and on some level. He says, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, 
This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is clearly showing us something. Clearly showing us something. That the person that has a deep sense of the reality of their sin, the person that has a deep sense of how they have offended God, this is the person who, when they come to God and they say, God, the only thing I can ask you for, the only thing that I can come to you with, the only thing I have is to beg for mercy. This is the person who goes down to his house justified rather than the other. This is the person who's justified, the person who knows that they're sinful, the person who is confessing their sin, the person who is open with their sin, and not just says, oh, this is what I'm doing, hope you guys like it, kind of a deal, but the person who recognizes it as sin and against God. David says in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Our sin expressed through our shame is against God first and foremost. Our story is a story of shame. The gospel is a story that shows us uh, how God superimposes his story of grace over our story of shame through this sense of confession. So what actually is the gospel? That's kind of what the gospel is not. The gospel is God's story of redemption that comes to fulfillment in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, and it has the possibility of supernaturally changing you. Let me read that again for you. The gospel is God's story of redemption that comes to fulfillment in Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, and it has the possibility of supernaturally changing you. I said last week that Tim Keller talks about how there's a difference between being morally restrained and supernaturally changed. Many of us in the church are morally restrained. We have exercised this, uh, our, our, our mental faculties and therefore have excluded things out of our life or at least have cleaned ourselves up on the outside. We're essentially just like Pharisees. We've caused ourselves to, to look like we have it all together. And so what's going on is that we're morally restrained on the outside. And so people don't know what's going on. Tim Keller and the scriptures talk about how the possibility is this in the gospel is that you can be supernaturally changed rather than simply just morally restrained. It has the, the possibility of changing our hearts from being people who don't really desire God but desire the morality of God to being people that are fully engulfed in who this God is and loving relationship with him, abiding in Christ, like needing more and more of Christ in our lives. That's what the gospel can and does do for us. Ephesians 2 Verse 4, but, but, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. What that verse is showing us is it, it's saying this, that God did not start loving us 
after we had sinned and after we had started to clean ourselves up. It's not like God saw us as this puppy, this little puppy. My in-laws just got a puppy. My wife really wants me to get a puppy uh, for the kids uh, this, uh, this Christmas. I'm rejecting that right now. Um, and it's because those things are sinners. I mean, they poop in the house. They pee in the house. And, then they, and, and even more uh, concerning is the fact that they might poop on my grass. Or pee on it. I mean, here's the thing. Occasionally, I, I love my grass. I love, I love my grass. It's, it, is, it really is my hobby. It's, uh, it's fantastic. Uh, but uh, sometimes I go out there with my sandals, and then I think it would be really nice to walk in the grass in my bare feet. And so I go out, and I, you know, I, just, I can feel the thickness of the grass. I can feel just how amazing it is. I mean, I know you can't imagine me taking these boots off, but it, it's happened at least once as I've walked on my grass. But I cannot conceive of a moment as I'm enjoying my grass when I step on poo. You know, I mean, just like, that's, that's, that's disgusting. It's, it's not like God sees us, and I have to get back to what I was saying. Where was I going with that? Okay, all right, all right. It's not like... God looks at us and, say, uh, and says, all right, he's a cute puppy. He craps all over the place. He's so cute, though, I want to take him. It's that God's love for us extended well beyond. In fact, Ephesians 1 talks about God's love for us extended before the foundations of the earth. That God's love for all people and for the world is expressed in his gospel. It is expressed to everyone. And so what it's saying, because of the great love with which he loved us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. See, God's love is the antidote for your shame that is driven by a performance-based relationship as you desire love. See, our world says that everything is based on shame, fame. If you have done something shameful, then you will be shamed. If you've been able to perform, then we will give you fame. God's love is completely different. You cannot perform for his love. He has already loved you. The beginning of the gospel starts with the love of God. The, God, the beginning of God's story starts with the love of God. Go to Romans chapter 1, verse 16. The Apostle Paul says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Paul says that the, the gospel is essentially this. This story of what God has been doing from the very beginning of time until now, until the end of time, what God is doing, this story is the gospel. It is the gospel. It is ultimately good news. Gospel means good news. And it essentially is saying this. It's saying that if you know this story and integrate this story and implement this story into your life, it can supersede all other stories that are performance-based that say, I'm loved if, I'm perform if I perform. Instead, your story can say this because it's his story. It says, I'm loved 
even though I never have performed. Even though I never have performed. It is the power of God for this. It takes the power of God to bring about this salvation. It's a, a rescue. It's, a, it's saving us from the reality of what is tearing us apart. What's tearing us apart is this massive sense of shame that we have in our world today. It's a sense of shame that is driving the evil that is going on in our world. Not just that we see on the news, but the evil that's in our home. It's a powerful story that can heal marriages that are driven apart by shame and the concealing of it. It's a, it, it is the power to save people from ultimate and complete uh, desperation. It's a power that changes people from the inside out and causes them to be who their created, creator intended them to be. It is an amazing power. But do we see it? So how do we apply it? How do we apply this story of the gospel? Well, first of all, it begins with this. Romans 10, 9 through 13 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 11, look at this. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you see that connection there? I mean, it's, it's, it's very clear that the confession is this. It's confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. What are you saved from? Your shame. Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. You and I are saved from our shame when we receive the gospel, when we internalize it, when we take it in for what it actually is, and that is to remove our guilt and our shame. So the first thing that we have to do is we have to believe the truth about our story. We have to believe the truth about our shame. We got to believe the truth about what Ephesians chapter 2 says, that I'm dead in my transgressions and sins. You can't come to God with just saying, you know what, I like this lifestyle. I like these people. I like, you know, I feel an affinity for them. That's not coming to God. It is a confession that says, I'm living in shame. I'm driven by shame to be prideful. I'm driven by shame to say, this is why everyone should love me. I'm driven by shame. And what happens as a result is that it brings deadness. It brings about slavery, an ongoing slavery, being a slave to sin as I'm engaged in this cycle of shame. I'm a slave to it because I have to cover up the first lie, which says I'm loved if I perform. And so I tell another lie, and then I tell another lie. And so my entire life is a lie, but Jesus says, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But the people that Jesus said that to in John 8 were offended. They were offended. The Pharisees were offended. Evangelical Christians today 
Many of us in this room are offended at that. Now, you not, may not be saying so, but there, there's a sense in which we want to announce our own righteousness in the same way that these people do. What's keeping us from receiving the gospel? We don't believe the truth about the fact that I need the gospel, that I need his story as my story, that I live in a rat race on a treadmill that says, if I perform, then people will love me. If I perform, then God will love me. If I perform, then fill in the blank. Or because I can't perform, God could never love me. Because I can't perform, I don't deserve anything. Because I can't perform, whatever. It's a rat race that we're constantly on. And so what's the first part? It's believing with your heart and confessing with your mouth that you even need to be saved. That you need saving from who you are. Not because you're some horrible axe murderer. Very few of us in here are that. I see a couple that might struggle with that. But I, I'm not <laughs> having any personal conversations. I'm just guessing. But, uh, no, but it's, it's, it's those of us that are struggling with gossip. and lying, and cheating, and lust, and overworking in our homes, not spending time with our children, desiring relationship so badly that I'm willing to sacrifice my moral values, desiring love so bad that I'm willing to do whatever it takes. See, not many of us are ax murderers. But many of us struggle with the very things that keep us from God in the first place. And the truth is, is that we look at those things and we say, that's just, that's just a, a piddly thing. That's just, that's just a side note. That's not really, that's not keeping me from God. But the way to Jesus is not in cleaning yourself up. It is in the admission that I even need to be saved and the promise is this, is that you will not be put to shame. You will no longer be in a cycle of shame as you integrate the gospel, the story of God, his story of redemption into your life. So we have to believe the truth about our story. But then secondly... We need to believe the truth about his story. And as I've already told you, what is God's story? That he loved you while you were still a sinner. While you're pooping in the house, while you're doing whatever, and not because you're a cute little puppy, because you're a gremlin. And he loves you intensely. We gotta believe the truth about our story, but then we need to believe the truth about his story, and as a result, respond. We must respond. In Acts chapter two, there's a story. Jesus was crucified, he was raised from the dead, he uh, hung out with his disciples, and so forth, and then he ascends to heaven. He sends the Holy Spirit, and it's this big ruckus in the book of Acts, the beginning of the book of Acts there. And so people are like, what is going on with these people? Peter stands, and they all think that they're drunk. 
And Peter stands up and says, we're not drunk yet. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. And then he goes on to preach the most amazing sermon ever preached, perhaps, other than Jesus' sermons, right? And so what Peter says in this sermon to all of these Jews that are standing around is explaining to them what happened in the life of Jesus, the story of Jesus. He tells them the, the story, and then he says, he says this. In fact, I think this is the beginning of his sermon a little bit. Actually, no, it's, it's further down. Here we go. Verse 22, Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, he, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your, in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It's kind of an, an abrasive sermon. Are you offended that someone would say about you and about your sin that this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men? You, you, you crucified, essentially calling them lawless. Jewish people who've grown up with the idea of the Torah and reading about, about God and sitting under rabbis and going to church and whatnot. And, and, so, and Peter's sitting here telling them a sermon and, and telling them the reality of their need for Jesus, their need for this Jesus whom is God. And he tells them the truth about this and he says, you crucified and killed him. He goes on to say, skip down into verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The guy you killed, he's the Christ that you claim to be waiting for. He's the Messiah. He is the one that you've been waiting for, and you killed him. And he says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the, uh, the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? You know what that sounds like to me? The tax collector that says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. They're standing there and they're saying the same thing. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Because we killed God. Men and women, it's not that you are just kind of separated from God. It's not that you have a few moral things to figure out. It's that your sin, my sin, killed God. The reality of it is that we killed God and it is offensive. And if you don't get offended on some level, I'm not sure you heard it. And so Peter says to them, he says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What does he say? He says, first, repent. Now, what is repentance? 
Repentance is essentially saying the same thing about your sin that God says about it. Repentance is, is saying that the things that I've been involved with have been shameful. Our world is committed to lying to you to cover up their shame that you have not sinned. Our world is committed to telling you on a regular basis, don't feel your shame, don't sense it, that religious stuff is crap, don't buy into it, it just causes more shame, and we're all trying to avoid shame, we don't want to fat shame, don't want to do any, any other kind of shame, you just should avoid shame. Avoid religion, generally speaking, because it's just going to bring shame. What Peter says is he says, the way into, the way to respond to the gospel is through repentance. It is to say the same thing. I killed God. I have shame in my life that perhaps nobody knows about. I understand the fact that I've sinned against God. It's, it's confession. It's confessing the reality that I need to be saved by Jesus. It's repenting and it's turning from that and it's saying, I no longer want to live that way. Believe with your heart, confess with your mouth and you will be saved. But what are you believing? Not just that Jesus did something 2,000 years ago, but that Jesus did something for you and without him, you would live the rest of your days in shame and for eternity because of the sin in your life that keeps you on this shame cycle, never believing the love of God, believing that you need to perform in order to receive it. We must respond, and then lastly, we must go on responding. We've gotta go on responding. The Apostle Paul tells uh, the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, verse three, for I delivered to you as of first importance. He goes on to detail the story of Jesus, the story of God, the story of his redemption, the gospel. The Apostle Paul says it's of first importance. I told you last week about Galatians chapter 1, verses 6, where the Apostle Paul says, I, I'm, so, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ. He loves you even though you're, you're so full of shame and sin. I'm, so, I'm astonished that you started in the grace of Christ and then you moved on to performance again. And I told you last week that this is the perennial problem of Christians throughout all of time is to start with the gospel and then to say, oh, I'm going to move on to something else and to desert the gospel, to distort the gospel. It's a distortion. And the Apostle Paul goes on to say, like, this is incredibly important. In fact, he says here in verse 9, If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Realize the seriousness of that. The churches, and we're not the only right church in this city, by the way. Many, many gospel preaching churches here. It's not just us. I want to be real clear about that. Fantastic people at multiple churches in this town. Uh, Salem Alliance, West Salem Foursquare, uh, Church on the Hill, um, many other churches in this, in this town that are, that are fantastic. 
But there are many churches that are preaching to you a different gospel, a gospel of performance. And it is keeping you in a rat race. And the Apostle Paul takes it so seriously that he says, let them be accursed. That means send them to hell. That's serious. We have to go on responding. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1 gives a, gives a list of qualities, virtues. He says in verse 8, 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 8, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they'll keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're growing in virtue, if you're continually growing in Christ, then it's going to keep you being fruitful. You're going to be a fruitful Christian. So what happens if I'm not growing in these things? He says in verse 9, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Peter says that the reality is, is that if you're not growing in morality... God loves you anyway. Remember, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you even in the midst of your sin. But when you become a Christian, the expectation is this, is that as you focus on what Jesus has done for you, the story that God has told throughout all of time about your redemption and the possibility of supernatural change, the story that he's telling you should change you on a regular basis as you integrate it into your life. If you're not growing, then you are not remembering what Jesus has done for you. The gospel isn't just the beginning of your Christian life. It is what is supposed to characterize, flavor, be the soundtrack to your entire Christian life. It's like we have one song that we listen to, and it's gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ that tells us about how shame does not have to be your story. It tells us about how the grace of God can be your story. We sing a song that says, this is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. You, do you know why? Do you know why we say that? We're not just saying it because we actually believe that all the time. Because the truth is, I'll wake up tomorrow morning and I'll forget the gospel. I'm singing that because I want it to be constantly on my mind. Abiding in Christ means this. I'm constantly integrating the life of Christ into my life. I'm constantly breathing it. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is what we are, men and women. This is who we are. I could go on and on. The, one more before I close. Colossians 3. Verse 1. If then you've been raised with Christ, which is what Paul also said in Ephesians chapter 2, he's raised us up and he's seated us uh, at the right hand of the Father, whatever. He's raised us up. We are in this, this position of being accepted by God. And he's saying, since then you've been raised with Christ. 
He says, I want you to seek the things that are about Christ. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Set your minds on who God says that you are, not on who you say that you are, not on what your parents say that you are, not on what the teacher said that you are, not on what someone else said that you are. What does God think about you? Look at verse 3. Well, no, verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above that are not on things that are on earth. Verse 3. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's not that you're waiting for that to happen. It's saying, I know that your mind isn't there, but you're already there. Put your mind where you already are, which is seated in a pit position of love and acceptance by God as he lavishes you with his good news, with his grace. And then he says, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Listen, there's no doubt about your salvation. It may not be in your mind in the way that it should, but the truth is still there. You've been raised with Christ. And then look at what he says. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, and and, and all of this stuff. The Apostle Paul says right there, he says, it has already happened. The way to put away sexual immorality, the way to put away impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, The way to put those things away is not by saying, I've got to act like a Christian. But it's to say, God was rich in mercy. And he made me alive with Christ because of the great love with which he loved me. Not because of my performance. My shame is no more. I have been seated with him. I've been crucified with Christ. The reality is true. Dwell on that. If you have never received Jesus Christ like that, you must do it. Stop putting it off. And then the second piece is this. Be baptized. Do not put off putting your faith in Jesus Christ and giving him your shame. And guess what? We got a baptism next week. So you're in luck. So right after service, go out to Connect Central, and Brandon Haverland will be out there to uh, take you to a uh, classroom to just give you some information on that. That is the command. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Do you need to repent today? Have you not been baptized? You must. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the power of your word. Lord, I'm praying that uh, the truth of your gospel has perhaps gotten kicked into our hearts a little bit more today. That, Lord, that you would allow our hearts to be warmed and softened by your incredible love for us. And, Lord, may may we respond by giving you everything. May may we respond 
by knowing what you've done and confessing the truth about who we are and who you've made us to be. Lord, may we walk in that. I just want to ask you to keep your eyes closed for a minute. There's many of us in this room that have never paid attention to the, the shame that's revolving around in our minds. We've never understood how sin ha works its way into our life, how death is just revolving in our, in our lives, in our hearts, in our, our minds. And I think there's many of us here that have never understood how to apply the love, grace, mercy of God to those moments. And so I, I just want to pray for you right now that as you go to the Lord's table that you would be able to receive the grace of Jesus Christ. As you bring up those things in your mind that you can never forget that Satan continues to beat you with, that you would go to the Lord's table and to understand that Jesus died for that sense of shame. Lord Jesus, would they see this this morning? Would they apply your gospel? It's already happened. It's already there. They don't need to perform. Their lack of performance in the past has nothing to do with this. You have paid for that. So Lord, may they live in freedom. Lord, may the truth set them free that you are gracious and that you are good and that you are loving. It's in your name we pray. Amen.